Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is now set to enter its third week, and what many of us feared would be a one-sided war of conquest and occupation has now assumed a very different character. Russia's attack has stalled in many parts of Ukraine, especially in the north near the capital of Kiev, where the initial Russian airborne and special forces assaults were completely repelled. Many Russian units have suffered unexpectedly high casualties, and several elite units have been destroyed entirely, in some cases along with their commanding officers. There are obviously many facets to this conflict, but in today's episode, featuring Royal Military College of Canada Professor Sean Maloney, we're going to focus closely on the issue of military tactics, what the Ukrainians are doing right, where the Russian attack faltered, and what steps Vladimir Putin's forces might still take to keep their attack going including the terrifying possibility of Russian howitzers firing nuclear-charged ammunition. Professor Maloney is an expert on not only conventional forms of warfare in all modern theatres, but also the history of the Cold War and nuclear strategy in particular. He spoke to me on Tuesday afternoon. And one final introductory note for listeners, because so much of our conversation is based around the geography of Ukraine, I've put up an annotated map on the episode page at the Quillette website, which you can find by visiting quillette.com and looking for podcast number 183, which should be right up near the top of the main page, assuming this is still March 2022. On that map, I've marked all of the cities and battle locations that Professor Maloney cites in our discussion. As a layperson, my sense was that the Russian plan was a sort of shock and awe strategy, and that within a couple of days they'd take over the major cities and there wouldn't be that much fighting. Is that your sense of what the Russians thought would happen? What they thought they would do is they would build up an iron ring. And there was, so there was an initial buildup period last April, May to position themselves to do this. And then in the fall, they started ramping that up. Again, we're dealing with the Russians. So they're dealing with, a lot of people use the term hybrid warfare, uh, but really we're dealing with uh, gray zone warfare. We're trying to convince a target to do what you want through a variety of threats and mechanisms. So you see that that build up in the fall connected to a lot of diplomacy, cyber, economic threats. Okay, so it, the military is a component of what we would call hybrid methodology. So, so you see this build up that takes place throughout the fall, and when that didn't work they built it up even more and they started exercising nuclear forces to demonstrate how serious it was. So there was a, there was a, a substantial, the substantial maneuvers on this take place in December initially. And so when that doesn't, didn't work, they round up with a problem in, with Kazakhstan. So they had turnaround deal with Kazakhstan, which slowed them down a bit and changed their uh, schedule a bit. Once they dealt with that, then they reinforced into Belarus. Now what that did is it gives them more frontage to deal with. And they thought, of course, the Ukraine would cave in and they start ramping up economic and cyber and tax against utilities, that kind of thing. Lots of diplomacy, lots of threats. And then, of course, they're gauging how the West is going to respond to this. And so ultimately, when none of that worked, the next plan, again, because they've 
they've really misunderstand the Ukrainians. Sorry, when you say when none of that worked, worked to do what? The Russians they basically want to replace the government with a puppet government and then, then run the country their way. Turn Ukraine into a sort of Belarus. Yeah, more or less. But the, the actual plan as it's been un uncovered was, is to break Ukraine up into about six different small countries. Sorry, where I, I, I missed the reporting on this plan. Where, where was this plan reported? Ukrainian special services raided one of these cells in Ivano-Frankivsk and uncovered that aspect of the plan. Anyway, so what winds up happening is none of this is working. So they brought in a lot of forces. They thought they would do a coup de main on Kiev and basically just be invited in. And so that coup de main was going to consist of uh, basically assassinate or get rid of the government and then move special forces and that sort of thing into the capital, generate disruption, grab key positions, land an air mobile force on an airfield near Kiev, then fly troops in and basically drive downtown and then occupy the place and say the government's changed and go ahead implementing their plan. It's actually, they, they'd done this before with Afghanistan in 79. It's actually remarkably like it in some ways. But then that's where this all goes wrong. The Ukrainian special services are quite aware of the teams that are coming into the city and they're neutralizing them. Some of them are dressed as Ukrainian troops. The big fight for hostile airfield really throws everything off. So the disruption of that operation on the airfield throws everything off. And so they have to, they try to reinforce that and so those guys keep getting whacked. They try to drop another airborne element in behind Kiev, sort of the southwest, and it completely fails as well. Now, normally when you drop airborne forces in, you send a ground force in to link up with them, and then you hold that ground and move forward. Well, the force coming down out of Belarus, of course, runs into problems. They run into an obstacle plan, a very sophisticated one that the Ukrainians were prepared for, including flooding certain areas, and then all sorts of armed resistance. And so that force that was supposed to come out of Belarus relieved the airfield and then move right into the city and follow on to assert control of the city. That's all been stalled out. When people talk about the so-called convoy, that's what I'm talking about there. Now, that's changed in the past 24, 48 hours a bit. So the whole plan here was you, you basically you get the capital and you can basically order the country to surrender, install your puppet government, and then break the country up, and then no more Ukraine. The convoy thing is kind of this very strange subplot, because there's all these reports that something like 60 kilometers long. Was that part of an original plan, as you said, to use conventional land forces to support a kind of bridgehead that was created by, by airborne troops? Yeah, that's it, designed to get down there, relieve the airport, and then press on. Once the airborne forces are, are flowing in after the air assault on the airport, then they, they move into the capital to back up the special teams that are in the capital. And then the armored and mech guys come in. You, you basically have a massive show of force that you're in control of the capital. What was coming down through Chernobyl and all that, it runs into an obstacle plant, and it can't maneuver. It's not really a convoy. It's what we call march column but they're constrained by the terrain. I've driven around up there. Like, Ukrainian highways are not like ours, okay? So you've got, like, a two-lane highway, flooded ground on part of it. You've got woods, old-growth forest up there, and you're coming out of the Chernobyl exclusion zone as well. Now, at the same time, it starts getting hit with uh, UAV strikes and SU-24 fencer strikes. And then on top of that, they probably have special operations forces wandering around the woods, blowing things up and killing the right people. So there's a whole bunch of activity that went on to slow this up and interfere with it. How many of those vehicles are still operational? I don't know. 
I don't see them driving around anywhere else, do you? Because there's been all these scattered reports that either I've heard everything, uh, maintenance issues, blown tires, deserting soldiers, deliberately putting holes in gas tanks to yep. so they wouldn't have to go to the front. Plus some of them just getting blown up and blocking the road. Yeah, it'll be all that. If Putin called off the war tomorrow, which I guess he won't, but if he did, would they even be able to evacuate this convoy? I don't know. There are other forces operating west of there. People just see the vehicles on the road because you, can, you, you can't see under the trees from the air, right? So what's happened is that there, there are mechanized forces that are pushed to the west. And there's, there's fights going on back and forth over the Hostomel, Buka, Irpin area. That's gone back and forth at least three times. And they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to break out and gain room to maneuver. And the Ukrainians have been fighting tenaciously to keep that as contained as possible. So that if you keep them concentrated and you hit them with air power, it's, it's easier to kill them. But they are breaking out. And then, then of course, Ukrainians bring in reserves to contain that. And at this point, as far as we can tell, only reconnaissance troops have gotten into the outskirts of Kiev on occasion. That they, as far as I know, they were unable to get into the city proper. They got into one of the one of the northern suburbs, and then they pulled back out of there because they probably couldn't sustain it. So there's a lot of activity going around the capital. The thing is, you have to do proper combined arms stuff to get into a city. If they start committing these forces into the city itself, which has been preparing to defend itself for how many days? You're looking at Stalingrad-type stuff. I mean, Kiev, the old part of town, which is dense-packed, and then the outskirts, which are more suburban-like, it's a city fight. It's going to soak up combat power. When the Americans did something roughly analogous in Fallujah, it required months of preparation and highly coordinated combined arms force some of the best trained soldiers in the world, all these factors that Russia doesn't have. You're right. You're bang on. Is there any way they can take Kiev under these circumstances? Well, they start using low-yield nuclear weapons, maybe. Okay, so uh, that's a new topic. You mentioned conducting some kind of tactical tests involving nuclear weapons. No, what they're doing is they're conducting exercises of their strategic nuclear forces to signal us. So you've got you to go back into history and you look at the intervention in Hungary during the Suez crisis in 56, and you look at the intervention into Czechoslovakia in 68. And before they intervened in those territories, they conducted a series of exercises involving the strategic nuclear forces to signal the West to stay out. I mean, I've done a lot of historical work on this. And, and so when I saw this happening again, this is designed to signal us that not to intervene. So you've got bear bombers and you've got black deck bombers, and they're essentially cruise missile Pez dispensers. So they can fire 16 or 20 cruise missiles out of each plane. Then you've got mobile ICBMs. They're called YARs or Topol M, and that's basically an ICBM mounted on a huge truck. And then, of course, you've got ballistic missile submarines. So when you start seeing these moving around, and they tell us openly that they're doing certain things and you build a picture of it like i did the pattern is very clear and then when they start manipulating command control aircraft right and so when you see combinations of these things going on you know that they're flexing the nuclear uh, sinews there so the danger of course this relates to canada because you've got t-160s and bears up in the arctic that's on the edge of norad so that affects us this is why this is not just contained to ukraine it's a larger problem so for example i saw the maneuvering uh a ballistic missile division out in Novosibirsk. That's nowhere near Ukraine or Europe. But if you draw a straight line from Novosibirsk over the pole, North America is within range of those systems. So this has been going on continuously since probably late November in one way or another. But is it foreseeable that a nuclear-tipped cruise missile could be used in some kind of tactical capacity? No, in no, Ukraine? no. They've got, they have what we call sub-strategic nuclear weapons. So weapons that aren't as destructive as strategic weapons, but still use a nuclear component. So 
There's artillery shells for the 203mm self-propelled gun. The Topol M has a kiloton yield capability. It can dispense several of them. I don't know exactly how many. You've got systems that are indistinguishable from conventional systems that can fire these things. And they are deployed in Belarus. I've seen them moving in there by train. I saw a picture of a bunch of massive self-propelled guns loaded on a train. Yep. I don't know if those were the 203s, but what effect would a nuclear tip shell have? It can be, it's immensely devastating, depending on the height of burst. It generates not just the not just the explosive blast of a particular weapon, but it's the waveform that's created that causes in, immense devastation, especially the buildings. And then, of course, there's the shock effect of using it because then you're crossing another line. And see, he's already crossed several lines by invading, like Bill doing the buildup, invading Ukraine, and then exercising his nuclear forces already. So this would be sort of technically the next line that he might cross. He maybe goes chemical. The systems can fire chemical weapons as well. So he's got a number of options here to terrorize Ukraine and intimidate the West. But that would turn Russia into something like North Korea. Date. I mean, even North Korea hasn't used nuclear weapons against its adversaries. Ukraine's not covered by the NATO nuclear umbrella. What's to deter him from doing this, especially if he's losing? This is what a lot of people find frightening. Isn't that Putin is winning? It's, it's that he's losing. And his personality and his rhetoric is such that it's very difficult to see him saying, well, this didn't work. I guess I'm going home. Does he have any other options except this massive escalation? You want me to get inside his head? Hmm. Difficult to do. I'm not him. I'm glad I'm not him. But put it this way. Like I said, how many red lines has he crossed? And what stops him from doing this? When the initial airborne component of the Russian attack didn't work, were you surprised that they kept going with any kind of large-scale invasion from Belarus? For me, some of the precedents that jumped out were in Grozny, there was an entire Russian armored column that was just annihilated in street fighting. That's right, yeah. Yep. So the Russians can't just send tanks into cities without infantry support. That's right. Look, if you're, if you're going to deal with a city, you need highly specialized engineering vehicles. You need trained combat engineers. You need direct fire artillery. Well, you've seen that with the TOS ones and the thermal barracks. They'll use those. And it all has to be done in concert. Do they have the ability to do that right now? Hmm. Good question. What's on the roads north of Kiev? What's still in Belarus? When we saw the buildup in Belarus, it was just like, okay, we know this is designed to hit the northern part of Ukraine. The really important point here is that Zelensky didn't flee. Zelensky stayed. And this is where we're dealing with the non-technical aspects of war, morale, and we're dealing with will to fight. And they demonstrated will to fight. They demonstrated that all the dirty tricks that were played to take that government out failed. And so force majeure was the last option to, for the other side to accomplish its objectives. And that is increasingly problematic. I'm not saying it, this is not a done deal. Don't get me wrong. This is not over. Putin can continue to reinforce and reinforce and reinforce. It's a question of, at this point, how many cargo 200s wind up going back to Russian town? And that's the zinc coffin. We're at a point where we're not sure where this goes from here. This is beyond anything we would have imagined happening, at least prior to last fall, when the number of us were starting to look at this with some alarm. And now a message from another podcast that I think you're going to like. It's called The Lost Debate. And unlike the Quillette podcast, which is mostly just me, this one's got three hosts, and they feature a lot of viewpoint diversity. You've got former Obama staffer Ravi Gupta, Corey Bradford, a former political organizer who worked in the Deep South and also became a TikTok star, and Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and free speech libertarian. Now, the whole idea of the lost debate is that it's a nonprofit enterprise to get people out of their mainstream media echo chambers without diving into alt media conspiracy theories. 
Twice a week, they cover the latest news and trends, and even though it's a debate, it isn't vicious cutthroat left versus right stuff. These are constructive discussions between real people. And again, those real people are Ravi Gupta. There are three places in the world that do this kind of research, this gain-of-function research, and one of them is in Wuhan. Corey Bradford. Black and brown communities, they want police reform. They definitely want better treatment from police, but they don't want to eliminate police or defund them. And Ricky Schlott. As a libertarian, I think bodily autonomy is a principle that's really important to me. Join the conversation today by searching The Lost Debate on YouTube or any podcast platform. And now back to our own Quillette podcast. So I remember in 2006 when Israel invaded southern Lebanon and Hezbollah acquitted itself from a military point of view quite well. Morale stayed high. They were defending territory they knew. They had shoulder-launched weapons that were effective against Israeli tanks. Something roughly similar seems to be happening in Ukraine. Are we witnessing the end of the age of the armored fighting vehicle? No, because any other gun armor mobility race, it'll evolve. You've seen how the, the Russians have attempted to put a, a standoff system to defeat Javelin. It's not working. That's the anti-tank missile. Yeah. The demise of any system is always suspect. There's always a competition between the various types of systems, and you always need different types of systems to accomplish different things. So I never get into this such and such a system's done, because I've heard the argument, now I'm 54, I've heard that argument at least three times in my career. Armies often win or lose wars based on the morale of their troops. What do you think it's like to be a Russian soldier right now? Well, it's interesting. I've, I've watched, I've been watching a lot of uh, the prisoner of war footage. The thing that struck me the first time was, what is this, the children's crusade? <laughs> because they're, they look like they're between 16 and 18. And I didn't see any older senior NCMs except one. And I saw one officer. And I'm looking at this thinking, what in the hell is going on here? So some people started up with the theory that, oh, they're, they're, they're expending all the useless troops first in, in front of the firepower. And they're going to bring in the 10-foot tall guys behind them. Well, that hasn't happened. The 10-foot tall guys were the VDV paratroopers. And I've been keeping track of uh, Russian general officer casualties. I'm up to about 15, including three brigade commanders for the VDV, the air assault guys. I think there were three senior guys who got killed by snipers, if I remember. Those are other guys. Those are like the deputy combined arms army leaders. That's big fish. But if you're killing off your brigade commanders and you're killing off div commanders and destroying their command posts, and so we're seeing a lot of dislocation at that. And if the if those higher level guys are coming forward to get people moving, like you've seen the movie Patton, right? Remember that scene where Patton shows up at a traffic jam and starts using his force of personality to unjam the convoy? And that's probably how some of these guys have been off. They've moved forward to try and lead from the front. But there's some Ukrainian sniper who has the fire discipline to wait for a guy with a lot of stripes on his shoulder before he shoots? Oh, yeah. But one of them was in a helicopter that was taken down. Oh, my God. They probably saw him get on, waited for the chopper to take off, and shot it down. And then on top of that, you got the the Oman and the uh, Rosgardia, the occupation force, the NKVD equivalent. And those guys have been getting whacked. Like, they sent a Oman special forces unit called Sobar, into the into Kiev in the first like in the first time that they they tried to get in there that whole unit was wiped out along with its colonel. When you say wiped out, you mean either killed or captured? Oh, killed them all. I suspect that was the snatch team for Zelensky, but I don't know for sure. They they ambushed it and killed everybody in it before they could get anywhere near. Well, those are the guys who are who are ethnic Chechens. No, that's a whole different organization. Those are guys who were flown in specifically to terrorize the Ukrainians because of the fearsome reputation of Chechens, right? Well, those guys, they're, they're driven or flown into Hostomel. The minute they leave the gates, the convoy's ambushed and their general was killed. So they've been moved 
somewhere else and the propaganda makes it look like they're doing this fighting, but they're up on the flank somewhere and wandering around the woods from what I can tell. It sounds like some of the best troops Russia has have either been killed or neutralized in some yeah. way or are having supply issues. Yes. Well, we talked about the, the northern part of Ukraine. In the southern part of Ukraine, the Russians have had success. Yep. They took at least one strategically important city. Called Kherson. And it, there was fighting back and forth at Kherson for several days before they got into the city, which is surprising. The, the bridge that connects Kherson with Crimea, I expected that had been blown up earlier on, but it wasn't. And there was a lot of seesaw fighting in there. It's still, I mean, if there was any place they should have done a descent and grabbed the bridge, it was there, and they didn't. But they fought, fought through it. Now, and the Kherson locals aren't going along with the project. They're doing demonstrations every day. And then currently the, the uh, Rosgardia and the occupation forces are hunting down and disappearing people that organize demonstrations now. That's interesting. But yeah, they, they moved up. Now they're being held at Mikhailov, and they've tried to work their way up into the interior, but they did another air mobile attack with a special forces unit called Vimple, and apparently that didn't go too well because I think that whole unit was wiped out. Was that in Mikhailov? That's north of that. But yeah, they tried to grab another airfield and they, they sent these guys in to do it and they were, all the helicopters were taken out. That's what I've heard. I don't have that confirmed. So then we shipped over to the east. You got Zaporizhia and the reactor. You've heard all about that. Now, you got to understand, in Ukraine, the terrain differs. Further east you go, the more it looks like southern Saskatchewan. The steps. The further west you go, the more it looks like northern Ontario. You're fighting different kinds of wars, in a way, based on the terrain. For people who don't know Canadian geography, you're talking about the plains. This is, this is like the battlefields of Kursk in 1943, as I understand this area. Yeah, pretty much, over by Kharkiv. And then the northern part of the country, there's more natural geographical impediments to movement, marshes, thick forests, stuff like that. Oh, lots, yeah. You're doing old-growth forest all along the Belarusian border. You've got different types of fights in different places. And so one of the things that you'll see in the, on TV, they put these maps of these red blobs up. And we're not convinced that they control all those areas. They may control the roads, and they may control some of the towns. But in terms of having occupation forces to control things, we're not convinced that's happening everywhere. You, what you've got to do is you got to look for Oman or Roskadia or those kind of occupation forces in cities or towns to determine whether they actually control it. Like you can roll a tank down a road and bypass a town, but the town is still there and it's still sitting astride your, your supply route, right? Of course, this was a problem in Afghanistan where a governor would say, well, I control the province because I can drive around the, the few paved roads, but <laughs> a kilometer inland from the roads and you don't. In this case, Chernev, Konotop, I'm not sure what Konotop's status right now is, Sumy, Priluki, some of those places. And you can tell the local video coming out, the locals, I saw one video where there were basically two drunk Ukrainians following a lost Russian APC. I think it was in Priluki. I couldn't tell exactly. It's armored personnel carrier. Yeah. The Russians are lost and these guys are just driving behind it. I mean, they could have lobbed a grenade or a Molotov onto it, but they were too busy laughing at the stupidity of these guys. Now, that's just one case. When you're dealing with people that know what they're doing, that's not going to happen. And like around Kharkiv, it's, you're not seeing that. You're seeing more hardcore activity there. But then, of course, you're seeing bombardments of cities to try and get people to give in. It didn't exactly work with London and the Blitz, so I'm not sure why they think it's going to work with Kharkiv. Well, it didn't work with Leningrad. Russians of all people should know that. Well, see, this is the whole problem with all this. You look at any major city like Dnipro, that's like Stalingrad. What it's going to take to control that place, you're going to have to, they have to convince it to surrender and occupy it because if you can defend every 
street back alley in there. That's in the center of eastern Ukraine, basically controls the river. Yeah. And so do they have the resources to occupy and control all the major cities in Ukraine? That's that's the first thing we looked at and we scratched our heads. Like, In other words, they got to do the coup de main in Kiev and get the government to change and then surrender everything. And that didn't work. So then they moved in. And then that's what we're looking at here. We hear these stories of Ukrainian units that are still active, essentially behind enemy lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They sent the road networks are controlled by the Russians. Right. I mean, Ukraine has a conventional army. It mm-hmm. isn't like Hezbollah. And yet, am I to understand that a lot of these Ukrainian units, they seem to be able to operate autonomously and more or less create their own supply lines yeah. living off the land? Yeah. Is, is that what they're doing? Oh, yeah. They can also live off the off the Russians because the equipment has the weapons have the same caliber. They both use the same gas. Like so, they'll they'll grab a bunch of Russian tanks and then start using them because they use the same ammo and all that kind of thing. So, I've lost track of how many times I've seen that. And the other thing too is, I mean, uh, behind the line stuff is, you see some really spectacular stuff. They know exactly what to kill. You go after the fuel trucks and you go after command vehicles. I look at the wrecks of these things every day. But again, don't forget, the Russians have a lot of stuff. Right now, it's, it's not clear which way this is going to go. But I'll tell you, even if they subjugate Kiev, this will, won't stop. There's this one picture I'm looking at, Russian military vehicles destroyed on a road in Buka in the vicinity yep. of Kiev. I know. Yeah, those are BMD-2s. Those are BMD-2s from the Airborne. I saw the mayor walk down that road. I mean, I counted, I think I counted 12 wrecks. But this looks like Grozny. You'd think the Russians would have learned uh, from Grozny. That's 25 years. That's 25 years. But a lot of the commanders presumably were... No, I don't think so. Look at the age of people. Your junior officers are only in their 20s. They were probably born at the time of Grozny. One thing that's also surprising, because you know every time you read a history of Napoleon's campaign in Russia or World War I, or, or certainly Operation Barbarossa, you, you hear about the terrain itself is a, is a weapon for the defender. My understanding is that the Russians have just completely got bogged down in the marshland in northern Ukraine. How is this something that the Russians didn't expect? This is mystifying pretty much all of us, but it speaks to problems in military education. And that's something I know about since I'm a military educator at RMC. Uh, if you have people that adhere to a party line, or adhere to, or don't think outside of the box, or aren't permitted to by the institution, or aren't creative, and you don't train your people to be creative and they follow a script, then they're not going to be able to adapt once things start going wrong. But is this incompetent staff work? No, I think it runs probably to the basis of the military education system over there. If you're presented with nothing but successes from the Great Patriotic War, and you don't learn from, let's say, Grozny, Afghanistan, whatever, then how can you expect to succeed? When I talk to my students, they, they want to learn about Vietnam. So I started explaining to them about General Job. And they don't know who he is. I said, well, he's the one that beat the Americans. Don't you want to know how to win? Or do you want to know how to lose? Does it surprise you that Ukrainian units, not only have they been effective in defense, you also hear all these stories that they're maintaining coherence, engaging in offensive operations against the Russians? Does that surprise you? No, not at all. You live near Toronto. Yeah. If Canada was invaded and somebody tried to occupy Toronto, what would you do? Well, I'd probably run away, but my neighbors would fight. But the thing is, I'm thinking of Iraq. When the Americans came, they were on Iraqi turf, but you had entire Iraqi divisions that just ran away. I think a lot of people assumed that something similar would happen in Ukraine. Because Iraq's not Ukraine. Now, when I was in Afghanistan, there'd be people coming in who had been to Iraq, and they kept trying to template Iraq onto Afghanistan. I kept telling them not to do that. Because guess what? Afghanistan's not Iraq. Different history, different culture, different enemy, different circumstances. 
If you know Ukrainians, they've had an independent country for 30 years after being subjugated by the Russians under communism, going back to the last time they were independent, which was 1919, and they were invaded by the communists. They've dealt with the Holodomor in the in the 1930s. The Great Famine created by Stalin. Yeah. And once the Cold War was over, we could talk about all that nasty stuff that went on under Stalinism and the communists. And before, that was a complete blank file. Nobody knew anything because there had been so much suppression of history. And then, so you have a national pride there of something that they have built on their own for 30 years without being dominated by, by Moscow. And they've pulled it off. And so they're a democratic country. It's imperfect, as, a, as ours is. But you're dealing with people that this is who they are. This is where they live. They, this is the way they want to live. They don't want to be controlled by other people. And the, I've, I've run into a number of people in Canada who, who think in terms of spheres of influence and buffer zones and all these abstract polycide bullshit ideas. Oh, well, you know, Ukrainians should be neutral because then, then there won't be any war. Well, you've got 44 million people there that don't want to be subjugated. So what's more important? Some academic saying that 44 million Ukrainians need to be a buffer zone to assuage Moscow? That's what we're dealing with here. Dr. Sean Maloney is a professor of history at the Royal Military College here in Canada and served as the historical advisor to the chief of the land staff during the war in Afghanistan. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Fantastic. We should do this more often. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.